Friends, let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, and really we're zeroing in on the last chapter of Scripture that the Apostle Paul will ever write. We know that he's in Rome, we know that he's in prison, we know that he's on death row, and he is going to be executed very soon after this. And as Paul gets to the end of his life, and as he um, searches in his mind and heart what to communicate to young Timothy as he hands over this mantle of ministry, his thoughts become very clear. He wants to be crystal clear about who God is and what the world is like that we dwell in. We're going to hear that today from our passage, starting in chapter 4 and reading the first five verses. Hear now God's word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together. Lord, you say that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so I pray that we would come hungry this morning to feast on your word. Fill our minds and our hearts and our stomachs with your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to do something a little bit different today with this passage. There's probably several different ways to look at these five verses and to interpret them and to preach them. One of the ways would be to to preach this sermon in two points. So verse one would be point one, and that point would be getting oriented around God. And then the next four verses, essentially, Paul gives us nine imperatives to follow. If your mind is centered on this, these are the nine things and the nine directions to go in. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. But we're not going to go in that direction today. Instead of of drawing out those several points, instead I want to paint a picture. We're not going to have points in this sermon. Essentially today's sermon is entirely pointless. Um, Instead, we're going to paint a picture, and I think this will be clear, because I want us to camp out in verse 1 and to see the world as it really is. Now, before we look at that verse, um, calling your attention to it brings an illustration to mind, a a metaphor to think about what we're doing this morning. Suppose that our entire church, on our very first church outing, we decided to explore the Arctic together. Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, never been, thought it'd be cool to take the entire church family with us. So we're traipsing around the Arctic. We've been there for several days, and our eyes are just picking up all these different things. We see rocks, we see snow, we see shrubs, we've seen a few seals, we might have spotted a polar bear or two, but this is great. Well, our eyes are to the ground and we're seeing new things. And then one evening, after we've been there for a long time, I say, we have a very special treat in store for us because I want us to look up and to see the northern lights. Now, I've never seen this before, the northern lights, aurora borealis. I've just seen pictures of it. But when you look up in the heavens and see these incredible streaks of of red and green and blue, it's absolutely breathtaking. 
And I imagine that if we had spent several days kind of looking at the ground and all we've seen is rocks and shrubs and seals and snow, and then we look up into the heavens and see the northern lights, we would be overwhelmed. And it would take a long time for our minds and our hearts to really process what it is that we're seeing. I think the same thing is going to happen by the Spirit's power when we look at verse 1. Because all of us in our lives have been kind of camped out looking at the ground this week, where we work and where we live and where we go to school and where we play and what's for dinner. And these things form the rocks and the seals and the snow and the landscape of our lives. But when we look at verse 1, I'm telling us to look up and to see the northern lights and who God is as he appears to us. Hear now God's word. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, our Bibles make the radical claim that God himself is present. Here and now, God is present. Do you know something that frightens me about doing church together, starting a church and doing church and, and, and gathering for Sunday morning together? We had a pastor come this week to do training for our elders and deacons, uh, and he asked a really profound question that has kind of stuck with me, and I want to ask it in a different way this morning. He essentially was saying, can you host a church service and not pay any attention to the presence of God? Can you do that? Can you gather on Sunday morning and not pay attention to the fact that God is actually present in our midst? Well, the chilling answer is, of course you can do that, right? In fact, you could get any entrepreneur, if you have an ounce of of entrepreneur initiative, no matter what kind of religious background you are, but, but you could essentially start something like this, right? As long as you get a space that you can rent uh, and you hire some musicians and you prepare a talk and you put a sign out front and say that you were a church. If you have any talent at all, surely you can draw some kind of crowd. Somebody is going to sh- show up and listen to you speak and you will not be a paying attention to the presence of God. And yet, even in a place like this, where that's our earnest desire to acknowledge that God is king and in our midst, all of us are guilty of that, right? All of us come into this space on Sunday morning without a single thought that God is present here. We get up late, we shuffle in, we endure an hour-long service, we, we hustle out, and we do not pause, myself included, to acknowledge that God is present. All of us are guilty of that during our weeks, right? We keep our eyes to the ground and we're so focused on what we're doing and what's next and who we need to respond to and what email we need to answer and and how I'm going to make dinner that functionally we do not understand that God is present in our midst. We don't think about that as we're living our lives. We're, We're so distracted. Or worse, we think that that's unimportant in any given moment. What does the presence of God have to do with my commute to work or making a pot of chili? Well, over and against all of that, theologian Kevin Van Hooser says the church of all places should be a place-making endeavor. That is, when we gather as the local church, when we come together, we are doing something radical. We as a body declare that God indeed is on his throne and that he is actively present in this place. Stop wherever you are in your thoughts. Some of our minds are already wandering somewhere else. Stop right there. 
God is present. God is present here and now. God is real and he's active and he's in this place. The God that we're beginning to read about in our liturgy, the God of Genesis and Exodus, the God who made this entire world and then destroyed it again in a flood, the God who called Abraham and raised up Joseph, the God who's going to show up in Egypt in the 10 plagues and then show up to the people of Israel on the fiery mountain of Sinai, the God who ultimately is going to lead his people, the Israel, out of the land of exile, out of the land of slavery from foreign nations, and is going to in turn lead the new Israel, us, out of the land of exile from sin and death. That same God is present here this morning in our midst. He's a spirit. You can't see him, but he is more real and more alive and more present than the person sitting next to you. When we do the call to worship on Sunday morning, that's not just a polite Christianese way to say, hey, y'all, let's gather around and get started here. We're going to do a worship service together. That's a way to pause and acknowledge that God is present in this place. If you took that and you mastered that in your week, if you could walk out of here and, and understand that God is present and respond to the presence of God in every moment in your life in worship, you've mastered the entire Christian life. You master the call to worship and you've mastered the Christian life. You don't have to show up next Sunday because there's nothing else that we can teach you because you understand what it means to be truly human, to live in the presence of God and to respond to him in worship. I want to dig into this idea a little bit more about what we mean that God is, is present. Because our Bibles tell us that God dwells in heaven. And we know that heaven is not a place that you can locate on a map. It's not a location. It's not up in the sky. Heaven, to use a, a very woefully inadequate English word, is another dimension. And it's a dimension that overlaps our reality. And heaven intersects earth in many different places. One of the places that, that our Bible says that God in his dwelling in heaven intersects earth is in the life of a born-again Christian, right? Because God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Another place that this happens is in the local church. When we gather together, Ephesians chapter 2, it's like bricks are being built together into a temple that worships God. Heaven and earth intersect in the local church. God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent, but he's present in the fact that heaven is overlapping earth in these places. You could almost imagine this idea of these dimensions as an invisible curtain that exists between us and God. And right now, we don't have access to God with our senses. We can't see him. We can't taste him. We can't smell him. We can't touch him. He, he's divided from us. And yet this curtain presses in on us and his presence even now is felt. We feel it and we know that he is present. But this curtain that divides these dimensions or reality won't always exist as it does. Verse 1 continues on and says, Because we hear and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. And when I first wrote this sermon, I was going to give it the title, Getting Reoriented, which I think is a great title. And at the last minute, I chucked it and replaced it with Inaugurated Eschatology, which is a really bold move. 
Um, but I wanted to print that in our bulletin so we could see it in front of us because I want us to learn this dense theological phrase together because it's really, really important. What do we mean by inaugurated eschatology? That first word might be familiar to you, inaugurated. That's the beginning of something, right? And so when we elect a president into office, he gives his inaugural address. We're talking about something getting started, the beginning of something. Eschatology, on the other hand, conversely, is the opposite. It's the study of end times. That is how this world is going to end. So you have the beginning and the end. Inaugurated eschatology simply means this is the beginning of the end. The end has already begun. One of my favorite pastimes with my family is to play Uno. We like to play a few hands of Uno before or after dinner most nights. Uh, And on those rare occasions where I get just a really sweet hand, I've played a few cards and all I have left in my hand is draw four wilds and skips and draw twos and I'm like so excited. Sometimes I like to turn my hand to my family and say, this is the beginning of the end. (laughs) Things have been set in motion right now. They can't be undone. You're about to see some inaugurated eschatology up in here. Something is set in motion that can't be stopped. That's essentially what we're talking about when we use that phrase. Today is Palm Sunday. This is a highly symbolic day in the life of Jesus where 2,000 years ago, he gets on a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. And when people see it, they know what he's doing. They run, they cut down palm branches, and they race to flank the roads, and they begin waving those palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But Jesus doesn't get his kingdom this week. Jesus is going to be arrested on Thursday. He's going to be tried and executed on Friday. He's going to be buried in a tomb on Saturday. And when this Sunday comes, Easter Sunday, and Jesus rises from the dead, it is the center of our entire faith where Jesus defeats sin and death once and for all and receives his kingdom. It's still not fully realized. Jesus doesn't have right now in his possession a kingdom in which every knee has bowed and every tongue has confessed that he's Lord of Lords and every single tear and all pain has been wiped away. That now doesn't exist. He's been given the seeds of a kingdom, the beginning of a kingdom that will not be fully realized until Revelation chapter 11 when the seventh trumpet is blown and we hear a chorus from heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus has the beginning of a kingdom, but it is not fully realized. And yet, in the death of and resurrection of Jesus, he has inaugurated eschatology. Things have been set in motion that can't be undone. The end has begun, and we will see it very soon. You could think about this entire thing as a long fuse that goes to a stack of TNT. The the death and resurrection of Jesus lit the fuse of history, and it cannot be blown out. And it is moving towards this cataclysmic event that is both wonderful and terrifying, depending on where you're standing, but it will come, and it will come soon. 
Because you could translate verse 1 not as we read it in our ESV Bibles and of Christ Jesus who is to judge, but you could translate this from the Greek and of Christ Jesus who is about to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. He is about to do these things. The end is imminent. That means one day, a day much like today, a day that we don't know, a day that comes like a thief in the night. We walk outside under a balmy South Carolina sun and in the blink of an eye, the sky is rolled up like a scroll and the curtain that divides us from visibly seeing God will be rent and Jesus will appear before all of us and he will bring his kingdom and he will judge the living and the dead. A day is coming and it's coming soon. My family was driving to Target yesterday to get a game, and when we were in the car looking up at the sky, I told my kids, in a moment, Jesus will rip this sky in two, and he's going to appear. And my son Judah, who's seven, who I believe is born again and knows Jesus, said, remind me again of the gospel that we believe. What's Jesus going to ask us when he appears? Because when you start to think about the end that's begun, when you start to think about the fact that the skies are going to be rent and Jesus is going to appear before us, we get really serious and really sober about what is most important. And that is the gospel, friends. One of the things I love about this church, one of the things I love about being a part of Columbia Presbyterian is that we have non-Christian friends here every Sunday morning. Several of us have hung out. We've talked about some of these things together. I I continue to want this to be a place and a church where people feel like regardless of where they are on their spiritual journey, they can belong to a group of friends and family even before they believe, right? Anybody is welcome in this place. What I also love is when you sit in on a passage like 2 Timothy chapter 4, you kind of get the inner workings of the Christian church because you're listening to Paul address Timothy, a fellow believer, and in turn addressing all of us who are born-again believers. So this here is not the polished talk of a preacher. If you go and visit somebody's house and you don't know them really well, you're probably going to be parked somewhere in the sitting room, right? Or the living room, and you'll all gather together and you'll have your banal formalities of, of a meet and greet for each other. But this is not that. This is not sitting in the sitting room. This is being yanked back to the kitchen of Christianity where you get to really hear how mama talks to her kids. You get the inner workings of how a believer is talking to another believer. And I hope when you hear Paul talk to Timothy, you don't see any fire and brimstone preaching in the traditional sense. Nobody's browbeating another person to switch religions. I hope there's not a single person in this room who's interested in that. If God is really present in this place right now, if Jesus is about to appear, and when he does, he's going to bring the fullness of his kingdom, and he's going to divide humanity into two parts. One, those who have been born again and worship him now are going to be received into his kingdom forever and ever to worship him. And those who have rejected him in this life are going to be separated from him forever and ever. If that is true, I hope that verse 2 makes sense to every single person in this room. When Paul says to Timothy, please preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Please do that. In other words, please preach the gospel. Whether it's convenient or not, whether you have an opportunity or not, whatever you do, please speak often and well of Christ because he is about to appear. I hope you sense the love in that. I hope you sense that a person who talks to you about the beginning of the end, the person who talks to you about your eternal soul, is the person who loves you dearly. Do you see that? Do you see the love in that? To the Christians in our midst, as we, as we think about this and we think about Jesus' imminent appearing, I love how one Christian commentator who was so overwhelmed by the emotion of this writes, The expansion creates a motivational horizon consisting of dominant eschatological symbols that are multidimensional. If that doesn't preach, I don't know what will. Um, what I think he's trying to say is, when you look up in the sky, this is going to change us. This is going to change how we live and operate and we think about who God is and what he's about to do. We're going to see next week when we focus on the next couple of verses and talk about Easter that that this text becomes a compass of hope to us because all of us are guilty of having our eyes to the ground, right? All of us let the rocks and the shrubs and the snow dominate the landscape of our lives and all of us need somebody to grab us and say, hey man, Has your eschatology been inaugurated or what? Do you understand that this is the beginning of the end and this is all working towards a Christ who will appear and bring his kingdom? So I say to you, friend, whether you're a believer or not, God is present in this place and Jesus is about to appear. Whether you know him or not, very soon, every single person in this room will see him face to face. Let's pray together. That's a wild thought, Lord, that we are about to see you face to face. For some of us, that is so exciting. It spells an eternity of worship and rest. And for others of us, that's terrifying because we have no idea where we stand with you. I plead with you, God, that you will not let us walk out of here and keep our eyes to the ground, but we will look upward and understand that you are present and that you are about to appear and that we must do business with you. I plead in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.